This is Eric Mann, the host of Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. Today, Tuesday, the 11th of January, 2022. How did that happen? We're going to continue our struggle to reclaim our revolutionary history. I've been working with Ernesto Arce, and I've been going back to find some of our not just greatest hits, but history-making shows that Voices from the Frontlines has made because it's helping me in my recommitment to the process. So today we have an amazing show. Some of you have heard it, but I just reheard it, and it's sensational, with Mary Louise Patterson, one of the editors of the book, Letters from Langston, From the Harlem Renaissance to the Red Scare and Beyond. So let me try to walk through these names then I'm going to tell you why the significance of the show is and why every time I hear it, I get goosebumps and chills. So the book Letters from Langston, from the Harlem Renaissance to the Red Scare and Beyond, is a series of letters between the great artist Langston Hughes and Louise Thompson Patterson, who was originally Louise Thompson, one of the most charismatic civil rights and black communist leaders of the 1930s. William L. Patterson, one of the most charismatic and successful black revolutionary leaders of the 30s, 40s, and 50s, who was the author of We Charge Genocide, The Crimes of the United States Government Against the Negro People. It's also between another couple that's not as well known, but they were all very, very close friends, Matt Crawford and Evelyn Nebby Crawford. So the first thing about this book is it's letters between five pro-communist, anti-imperialist, black intellectuals. And as I say in the show, I also read it for just the level of literature, letters as literature. So then the conversation is with Mary Louise Patterson. So imagine, if your parents are superstars, and she turned out to be a superstar herself, which is pretty impressive. But William L. Patterson and Louise Thompson Patterson were just two of the most astounding people. And if you read the book, which is the purpose, Letters from Langston, at one point I call it Letters to Langston because so many of the great letters are from Louise Thompson Patterson to Langston Hughes. But we'll let Mary Louise Patterson tell that story. Today, what I want to do is talk to you again and again until I finish my book, which I better, In Search of the Revolution, The Journey of a Movement Organizer. It's not just the issue of the loss of historical memory. It's about how the system systematically destroys historical memory because it has to destroy the memory of the revolution because even in the middle of Trump and the pathetic Biden. So you have center-right Democrats and you have ultra-fascist Republicans. Where are the Black Panthers? Where are students for democratic society? 
Where is the Communist Party? Where is William L. Patterson? Where is Langston Hughes? Talking to a new generation of young revolutionaries, including black revolutionaries, they heard of the Black Panthers, but they think it was a movie. And they don't know what the Black Panthers, so you gotta read the book, Black Against Empire. So there was a long history of pro-communist, anti-imperialist politics that went all the way from 1917 to 1980 with the rise of Reagan and Thatcher. During that period, communism was a very, very popular theory, even inside the United States, with millions of people being pro-communist. A large number of Black people did not become communists. But some of the very best and brightest communist leaders, artists, became communists who had great influence, such as Nina Simone, Lorraine Hansberry, Ozzie Davis, Ruby Dee. So in listening to this book, here's what I'm thinking about. One of my very favorite shows on television was a series called The Man in the High Castle. And the plot is that Eastern and Midwestern North America is a colony controlled by the greater Nazi Reich under an aging Fuhrer Adolf Hitler. The colony headed by the Reichmacher of North America is commonly referred to as Nazi America or the American Reich as capitalism in New York City. The Nazis continue to hold minorities and euthanize the physically and mentally sick. The superior technology of the Germans is highlighted by the use of video phones and carcolite rockets for intercontinental travel. On the other hand, the West Coast is run by the Japanese Nazis and a neutral zone, which encompasses the Rocky Mountains, serves as a buffer zone between the Japanese Pacific states and Nazi America due to Cold War tensions between the Germans and Japanese blocs. In The Man in the High Castle, the popular story is that the Nazis won World War II, which in many ways they did, but that's another story, and that the so-called allies were defeated, which would justify the occupation of the United States by Nazi Germany and fascist Japan. But The Man in the High Castle has a film. It's a prudent film about John Kennedy, one of those grainy films that shows the Allies winning World War II and mass demonstrations in the streets of New York. That film is revolutionary contraband because when people see it, they realize, oh my God, the Nazis did not win World War II. The Nazis were defeated. So they can't let the film out. The story is years of the film getting out and being suppressed and all kinds of interesting stuff. But interestingly, the key to this brilliant, brilliant show in season four is that there is a white resistance to the Japanese and to the Germans that's doing okay and doing some very courageous things. But almost out of nowhere, comes the black communist resistance. And the black communist resistance is not written in the usual stereotypical, almost anti-communist manner to make the black communist look bad. Whoever wrote it was either a black communist or somebody who understood black nationalism, communism, and revolution. And in the story, 
the black communist resistance leads an underground resistance against the Japanese, drives the Japanese out of the West Coast, and is beginning to lead a movement against to drive the Germans and the Nazis out. I want to join the black communist resistance. I dream of the black communist resistance. In my own small way, the Labor Community Strategy Center is trying to organize a multiracial, black-led communist resistance. You heard it right on Voices from the Front Lines. So how do we rebuild the black communist resistance? How do we rebuild anything? In the interview with Mary Louise Patterson, she tells a great story, as you'll hear, that her father, the great William L. Patterson, every time she brought a boyfriend over, would first talk to the boyfriend about the Soviet Union, which is wonderful, and then say, do you study and do you read? Study and read. And I've written several books on strategy where I say the three main things any revolutionary has to do is read, read, and read. So by now you know that the strategy center, but also myself, I'm spending my year, this year, 2022, finishing my book and building the bookstore, the Strategy and Soul Bookstore at 3546 Martin Luther King. We have limited the bookstore to only 40 books. It's not whatever you want to read. It's a Marxist-Leninist, you could say, these are the 40 books you got to read. Those of you who would like to help us build the bookstore, please write to me at Eric at Voices from the Frontliners. Because to develop a Black revolutionary bookstore, including some wonderful children's books, including How Grandpa Stopped a War by Susan Robeson, about her grandfather, Paul Robeson. Yes, another Black pro-communist. So this is all taking us back to Letters from Langston. It's taking us back to the pretty amazing Mary Louise Patterson, the Black intellectual tradition, the Black literary tradition, the Black communist tradition, and yes, the Black literary writer book tradition. So we're allowed to urge our listeners that if you're interested, please get a copy of Letters from Langston, From the Harlem Renaissance to the Red Scare and Beyond. You can also get it at our bookstore. Strategy and Soul Books, I would be remiss to tell you about a great book and then tell you we don't have it. We got it. Even in preparation for today's show, I went back and listened, of course, to the conversation with Mary Louise Patterson. I went back and looked at letters from Langston, began to look at Robin D.G. Kelly's beautiful preface to the book. I live in the real world. I say in my own book, Playbook for Progressives, the successful organizer begins as a foot soldier, gets out on the block, gets out in the community. But when you're on the block and you're on the community, what do you think? What do you have to say? Where do your ideas come from? I think one of the places they have to come from is letters from Langston. Another place they have to come from is voices from the front lines and the amazing voice of Mary Louise Patterson. It's all right. So I'm in studio with Mary Louise Patterson and with Channing Martinez, who along with Evelyn Louise Crawford, 
has done a book called Letters from Langston, from the Harlem Renaissance to the Red Scare and beyond. Uh, welcome to Voices from the Front Lines. Thank you, Eric. Thank you very much. This is a, a very, this is really is about black revolutionary royalty. It really is, and, and an amazing journey for me and Channing that we've been on before we met you, but it's almost like we're so thrilled to meet you. So it'll all become clear in the next two or three minutes how we unravel this. So since Channing and I worked on the introduction, he's going to read the frame for the show, and then I'm going to read Langston Hughes' Dream Deferred, and then I'm going to start the conversation with my new friend, Mary Louise. Cool. And I, and likewise, it has been a very great honor meeting you, and we've learned so much about William L. Patterson and study him so much in our work. Uh, and, you know, it's it's a rare, like, occasion that we get to meet someone who's acquainted with a lot of the civil rights heroes that we've all learned about and studied about and try to model our work off of. And so it is a deep honor. Uh, so with that, we wrote this great introduction, Eric and I, and so it goes here. Historic correspondence among Langston Hughes, Louise Thompson Patterson, William L. Patterson, Matt Crawford, Evelyn Nebby Graves Crawford, five black revolutionaries, intellectuals and friends and members of the U.S. Communist Party. Mary Louise will be in conversation with Eric Mer uh, Mann, Channing Martinez, Barbara Lothalan in discussing her famous and heroic parents, William L. Patterson and Louise Thompson Patterson. She wrote, at some point in one's childhood or early adolescence, as one is intellectually maturing and becoming socially and politically conscious, one is faced with the need to accept or reject being or becoming like one's parents. One can either accept or reject one's parents' place in history. I chose to accept mine. And in doing so, I was admitting a profound indebtedness to the major contribution to who and what I became, to who I am today, Mary Louise Patterson. The Strategy Center has its roots in deep revolutionary traditions of black and third world people. Inside that vaunted group were the black communists, uh, true black red giants, friends and members of the CPUSA, whose names include, with many others, of great import, Cyril Briggs, Harry Haywood, W.E.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson, Claudia Jones, Ben Davis, this list also includes the writers of these letters, the prolific Langston Hughes, and along with William L. Patterson, defender of the Scottsboro Boys, and the author of We Charge Genocide, Louise Thompson Patterson, who is a brilliant, charismatic figure, organizing of, organizer of movements, plays in the Harlem Projects for Black Actors and Playwrights. Matt Crawford, one of the Black 22 uh, who were who went to make a film and study of the Soviet Union, and Nebby Crawford, who was a great friend and confidant of Langston, join us as we discuss and make history today. And then I have this poem that we all love. Uh, it's called A Dream Deferred by Langston Hughes. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? or crust over, and crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet. 
Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? And then I wrote, Langston's Magical or Dream Defer was also an inspiration for Lorraine Hansberry epic play, Raisin in the Sun. So welcome, Mary Louise. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here uh, for myself, but also on behalf of my parents. Yeah. Tell me, what's it like having truly giants for parents? I mean, we're talking about two of the most amazing I mean, I'm so in love with both of them. I mean it. They're my friends. I, You are a major, powerful figure, but I'm saying, what's it like to grow up with them? Well, one doesn't necessarily know that one's parents are who they are right. outside of being your parents until one's like a burgeoning adolescent usually, Eric. Right. So um, <clears throat> my early childhood, they were just my parents. Right. Um, that was good. Yeah, that was good. Um, but then you're becoming conscious of the world beyond your home. And uh, and then you start hearing about your parents. Um, I certainly did because this was the McCarthy period, the, 19, the early 1950s. Right. And um, my parents were caught up in, in that, in the anti-communist a uh, wave that was tsunami wave yeah. that was um, just flooding America uh, post World War II, um, and my parents were both members of the United States Communist Party at the time. The, Russia had been the Soviet Union slash Russia had been our ally during the Second World War, but coming out of the Second World War. Suddenly, the former ally became the enemy, and the former enemy, Japan and Germany, became allies. Um, And so my parents were on the um, enemy list. Um, So I grew up with and aware of the FBI sitting out in front of my home, in our home, um, in it was usually a Ford car, right. and there was oh, usually wow. four of them sitting in the car, um, and they were usually all white, right. and they would sit in front of the house, and they made no bones about being there, uh, clearly to to not only harass my parents, but to intimidate the community, um, to isolate my parents, to have them identified as pariahs. Um, enemies of the state and um, wanting the neighborhood, the neighbors, our neighbors, right. to reject us. So that that was my coming into, um, you know, adolescence and awareness of who I was, who my parents were, their place in the world, my place in the world. Um, that's what I, what I saw. So how was it? Well, it was both things. It was both scary as well as, um, I don't know, in, in some ways I was emboldened. Sometimes I would leave the house and they'd be parked, or I, actually coming home from school more than leaving the house, coming home from school in the afternoon and they'd be parked out in front of the house and I would stick my you know finger out at them and my <laughs> tongue out at them um, you know, as I entered the house. Um, so I was able to do that. But at the same time, I think I was afraid. 
You know, they represented a force that I understood could um, do harm to my parents. And ultimately, my father was imprisoned um, for short periods, uh, times two, during the 1950s. Um, but it was, but it was yeah. also wonderful. The people who, who came, who were their friends, who were just ordinary kind of uncles, extended uncles and aunts uh, to me as I'm becoming an adolescent, I'm aware of who they are. They're Langston Hughes, they're Paul Robeson, <laughs> they're W.E.B. Du Bois, um, they're Althea's Huntons, they're James Jackson, Louis, Louis Burnham, etc. These were... Um, these were the best in the black radical tradition um, who were comrades and friends and family, extended family, that left family uh, that we made, uh, that, that our parents made, um, who came to the house or whose homes we went to right. all the time. Well, this is wonderful. I mean, let me just go back a step for our listeners and uh, just to amplify on the history part of this for a minute. I mean, the Communist Party had been um, formed in, in about the early 1920s after the Soviet Union in, in the United States. And uh, it went through a period in the 20s of a very, in retrospect, so-called ultra-left period because they thought the revolution was coming right away. And so being a new party, not very experienced, I mean, people just came together. They were sort of down on everybody. You know, I mean, we're the only right ones and we don't work with anybody. And there was a, a period of, you know, a, a real, and that was going on internationally as well. And with the rise of fascism and with the defeat of that line, I mean, because it led the party to be very isolated, um, the party grew up. And you have to remember, just started in 1921. It was an eight-year-old kid, you know, which people don't understand. It grew up to say, we have to figure out something about the united front against fascism. But we also have to focus on the so-called Negro question. That was not what the normal white communist wanted to do. And there's a whole story about Harry Haywood, Cyril Briggs, your dad going to the Soviet Union, being educated, being trained in actual strategy and tactics as an Eastern school of the toilers. Uh, and they got serious college education on revolution. So they went back and realized that the communists would do best in what's called mass organizations, where a bunch of people would all be trying to do the same thing. But number one, the communists would do it better because they were harder workers. And the communists had some answers. So during that whole period of the 30s and 40s, there was a lot of uh, persecution, but there was a lot of acceptance. And Paul Robeson was speaking all over the world. Uh, I'm sure that you, your dad, I mean, William L. Patterson, you know, he, he led the struggle against the Scottsboro Boys. He was revered, he spoke, spoke to large audiences, including liberals. Uh, your mom, charming and political as hell, and... She's speaking to 1,500, 2,000 trade unions, and almost like the day after the war, there wasn't an iron curtain. The United States brought down an iron curtain against the communists who had already planned to get rid of after the war, and the communists did not know it. 
because they were so thrilled to finally be accepted in America. And they really thought that Stalin and Roosevelt would get together and have a more progressive world. So it's devastating that starting in 45, 46, 47, when the House Un-American Activity Committee, they take, you know, Paul Robeson simply says, the Negro people will not fight the Soviet Union. That's all he said. And they ruined his life over that. You know, they just absolutely destroyed him. So you are growing up in the middle of this uh, reign of terror. And just as you said, my mom was Jew. You know, she said, so how is it possible that all the Nazis came to the United States? You know, she says, so what was the point of the fight against the Nazis if if Werner Braun is now ahead of the... She was good on that. She says, they don't like us Jews, and America likes the Nazis. Mm -hmm. So how old are you... Well, I know pretty much because we're almost the same exact age. I can. Uh, so in 45, I'm three. In 48, when this is happening, so let's say in 50, you're eight or nine. Is that right? Seven. All right. I'm sorry. Wow. I'm eight or nine. You're a much younger woman. So you're only seven. We were, we were in the same school together, but you were one grade lower. So at seven, what's it like? Can you remember seven? Can you remember ten? When does it start dawning on you that, oh, my God, something really bad is happening, even if you're very proud of your parents? I think it was the Rosenbergs. Yes. Um, for me. Yeah, me too. Um, that I realized something bad is happening, something horrible yes. is happening, and it could happened to my parents, too. That's right. Um, so Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, I'm sure that most of your listeners or all of your listeners probably know who they were. Um, they were legally executed by the government of, of the United States, um, allegedly for espionage on behalf of the Soviet Union, um, Ethel was never accused of that, but she stood by her husband and went with him to uh, their death. Um, and it was that moment, I think, that I realized that um, this wasn't a game. That's right. Um, and that there were forces that could um, alter my life um, in ways that uh, I would never recover from. Um, so that was that was the first piece. And then the second piece was when my father in 1951 returned from presenting the genocide petition, yes. the We Charge Genocide petition, the crime of the U.S. government against the Negro people. That's what Um, Black people were called at the time. Um, In 1951, he comes back from trying to present the petition in Paris, and he is strip-searched at Idlewild, now known as uh, uh, Kennedy Airport in New York City. He is the attempt to humiliate him, to shame him, and he comes out from inside the airport, um, and there are tears of absolute rage in his eyes, I'd never seen my father like that. Um, he's received by Paul Robeson 
and my mother and a whole group of people who were there to receive him. Um, and Paul just embraces my father, must have understood what had just happened to him inside um, with immigration and um, and and the custom customs authorities. And my father emerges, and um, I wanted to run up and just grab my father because he looked injured. Right. And I'd never, ever seen him look that way. So that was the next point, I think, that I recall of what, you know, these unseen forces. I didn't know who they were, but I just knew that that there were people who hated my parents, and these people had incredible power, and um, they could make our lives very difficult. Um, my parents did everything, though, Eric, to shield me from um, the uh, the worst of the McCarthy period. Um, and living, being African-American and living in the African-American community also provided a certain amount of protection, um, although the African-American community wasn't necessarily pro-communist or pro-communist party. They certainly were suspicious of or had a lot of animosity, a certain amount of animosity towards the man, right. as mm -hmm. the government was known. Um, and so there was a certain amount of protection in being African-American at that time, um, you know, kind of ironically, right. right? Well, one of the things that's, first of all, this is just wonderful, and I'm so glad it's being taped, by the way, and transcribed. And we do have plans for a future event with Mary Louise at the Labor Community Strategies and Strategy in Seoul, which is a, it's called a teaser. We'll tell you when it's coming. But the thing that's hard, you know, I read this stuff. I, I live this world. I live in Haiti. You know, I live with Toussaint Louverture. I live, I don't know why. I, I'm, when I read history, I, I have the deepest empathy. And uh, what's hard is, so here you are. Here is what, you're black. And you're already, you know, under such derision from the existing system. And then a lot of people are saying, please, can we just get over it? You know, I mean, let's just please. I really appreciate, I respect what you're doing, but do you really need to be doing this now? You know, I mean, aren't you bringing down stuff on the community? You're getting that voice. Then you're getting other voices saying, no, brother, you're doing great, but I can't back you, but go out there and I got you. So the loneliness in some way, I mean, the black community absolutely did still support there were some really great articles for Robeson. But if you see in the film um, Here I Stand, when Robeson comes back from the Soviet Union in his 50s, it's the beginning of seeing a decline. You know, I mean, he just how much could one human being take? So what I'm getting to is I have enormous respect for what your parents did and what the black communists and what the communists did, what the Rosenbergs did, by the way. I... I'm a Jew, and, and that was a very big thing. The two events that shaped my life were Emmett Till and the Rosenbergs. And I was there at Emmett Till's age. He was a year older. And I identified with him. I just, it was like, you, you, how could you kill it? He's one of, you know, we're, we're just the same age. 
and the Rosenbergs were, I think, in, in that two-year period, you know. So thank you, and thank you for what your parents did, and thank you for this book. It's so beautifully written. I would like you to read that section I marked off in your own biography inside your own book. The Strategy Center believes in books and films. We think that revolutionary organizing is about reading and thinking. And it's not, of course, it's about fighting, and of course, it's about that. But they have, why do you think they have the Naval Academy and West Point? Why do you think they have the Harvard Business School? Because they train the other side. Why does the CIA train you? Why do they have uh, death sentences in Georgia to train you? The Strategy Center is trying to build the National Leadership School for Strategic Organizing, which we have plans for. And part of it is to read books like this for young, black, Latinx, white, Asian Pacific Islanders to grasp. One of the things that's amazing about this book is I always get confused sometimes about when I'm talking to Joanna, your daughter, and then she's talking about her mom, which is you, and then you're talking about Louise, right? And it's sort of a blur sometimes, you know, like it's sort of one one extended person is, is sort of in the very best sense of the word. Well, it is a continuum. Right, a continuum. That's the better word I'm thinking of, which is pretty cool. So with that, <clears throat> would you please read from your terrific book? My mother first met Langston in 1928 um, in... Um, at Hampton Institute. It was right. called Hampton Institute then. Langston was touring with his book, The Weary Blues, and they became fast friends. And fast forward to today in this book, which is entitled Letters from Langston from the Harlem Renaissance to the Red Scare and Beyond, as you mentioned, um, it's the forty almost 40-year correspondence between my parents, Langston, and my co-author's parents, um, Evelyn Louise Crawford. So this is an excerpt from um, our introduction, or actually our preface to the book, and this is from my portion of the preface to the book. In 1951, my father was subpoenaed to testify before a congressional subcommittee about the organization he headed at the time, the Civil Rights Congress, mm -hmm. which was a left-wing legal defense group he had helped found in 1946. Mm -hmm. The organization gained notoriety for challenging police brutality, defending African Americans falsely accused of crimes and victims of the latest Red Scare, and for submitting a historic petition to the United Nations charging the U.S. government with submitting African-Americans to genocidal policies. When Pat, my father, refused to answer questions, he was cited for contempt of Congress and sent to jail. He was first sent to the West Street Jail in New York City, it's no longer there, to await sentencing, after which he was sent to a new modern prison in Danbury, Connecticut, which was dubbed the Country Club because it was surrounded by trees and grass and had glass brick windows instead of metal bars. I was eight or nine years old, and I thought it looked pretty as we drove up the manicured driveway to the entrance for visits. My mother would drive us there almost every weekend, taking along the family of Jack Statchel, who was in the same prison for the same crime. We would be ushered into a large open room with groups of seats where we would sit and wait for the prisoners to be brought in. When my father would appear, I'd run up to him and jump into his arms. I never noticed any tears in his eyes or in my mother's, but I'm sure they were there. The task of making me feel safe and secure must have been challenging for my parents. 
yet somehow they managed. One of the ways they found to protect me was to send me to a wonderful summer camp in Vermont, Higley Hill. The camp was a haven for those children whose parents were jailed for being communists, had been forced underground to hide from the government, or were just having a rough time simply because they were suspected of subversion. Higley Hill was where I first met and sang with Pete Seeger. Hmm. Many of us went every summer and forged long-term friendships with other campers, some of which carried over into the rest of the year. During the fall and winter, we'd go to Hootenannies together or to Washington Square in Greenwich Village on the weekends to sing folk songs. The camp's owners, Grace and Manny Greenwich, had been in China around the time of the Long March and had met Madame Sun Yat-sen and Mao Zedong. Much later, when I was into having boyfriends, my father would always corner them, or so it seemed to me, to ask them what they were thinking about and then start a one-way conversation (laughs) with them. I'd usually roll my eyes and busy myself with some homework, but I'd listen in. He would often talk to them about the Soviet Union, China, and socialism or some other current event. He'd never miss an opportunity to, to discuss black history with them or with any young person who was visiting. He'd talk with controlled outrage about the cruel lies and shameless sham of emancipation, which simply relegated the Negro people to second-class citizenship and continued their oppression, all the while telling them they were free. He'd mention how he believed racism dehumanized white people, and he would always urge my boyfriends to read and to study. I can still hear his voice in my head saying, Young man, you must study. (laughs) He understood how ignorance made it easier for the rulers to keep their boots on our necks. At some point in one late childhood or early adolescence, as one is intellectually maturing and becoming socially and politically conscious, one is faced with the need to accept or reject being or becoming like one's parents. One can either accept or reject one's parents' legacy and place in history. I chose to accept mine. And in so doing, I was admitting a profound indebtedness for their major contribution to who and what I became, to who I am today. That is why I decided to undertake this book project with Nebby Lou Crawford. Thank you. Well, it's beautiful. For allowing me to read that. Oh, my God. It's beautiful, beautiful. I mean, we're going to have you back. We'll probably maybe just do the whole show with you for a Two months. And do, uh, I mean, this is very important. You know, Chang is, uh, in terms of the continuum, I'm a product of the Jewish socialist tradition, moving in very early into the black tradition, and then into the black revolutionary, anti-imperialist, black nationalist, pan-Africanist, pro-communist tradition. I do a lot of writing about how the final counter-revolution took place in 1979, 1980, with the rise of Ronald Reagan and uh, Margaret Thatcher and the just effort to destroy us of the new left as they destroyed your family in the 50s. They destroyed us in the 80s and 90s. So now I, in particular, am trying to hold both traditions together, the communist tradition, the new left tradition, then go back to Garvey, go back to Haiti, uh, and somehow teach people the continuum of all this. One of the people who's most uh, receptive, thank God, is Channing Martinez, who's of a different generation than me and different race than me. So, Channing, what 
based on the evening we had and, and what you're reading, where's your mind going with this as an organizer? What are you thinking about? What are you trying to take to other people? What's the book mean to you? Just whatever's on your mind. <laughs> thank you. Uh, and thank you. That's a really big compliment. And uh, I definitely accept that. And thank you. I'm growing into that. Um, the thing that I realized that I was missing was the reading and the study. And it's so important because when you're in your moment, you think that this is happening to you. How can this be happening to you? Uh, but the thing that I realized from reading is that it's the same old system that did whatever they did in the 50s. It's the same old system that raided the Native Americans. And it's the same system that raged up against in the 1980s. And it's not like their tactics are changing. Maybe the conditions and the elements and the time, place, and conditions aren't changing. But they're still using the same tactics. Uh, they're still trying to use your own people against yourselves. Uh, they are still trying to, based on time, place, and conditions, figure out what is the best chess move for them. And for me, I think the book and reading Black Bolshevik and studying with you has really taught me, like I was telling someone this earlier, how do you stand back and try to figure out the whole map and then figure out what your move is going to be on that map? And I think a lot of young folks don't know how to do that right now. I, I don't want to speak for all young folks, but to some extent, there is this like feeling of why is this happening as if it's the first time? Like, why is Trump happening? But there was a Reagan. Didn't you know that there was a Reagan? Didn't you know that some of the de same tactics that Trump was using were some of the same tactics that they were that was used during uh, the rising of the Nazis? Right. And how do you really get to the history of studying what did people do? Um, and I say that because I I hear that story about what happened to your father in the airport, and I can't even fathom what I would do in that situation or how I would react or how do you, how do you just carry on? Um, and I'm both like moved that I'm able to study that level of struggle because we're not at that level of struggle. We might complain about little things like, you know, elected officials not calling us, but <laughs> we're not at the level of, they're roughing us up in the in the airport when we're coming back in 2015 from Paris from, you know, carrying a book that says, what are we going to do about the United States, right? Uh, we're not at that point, right? Um, I'm glad we're not at that point, thank goodness. I have a lot of gratitude to actually study a lot of that work to figure out and understand both the system that's going on right now, but what are the moves and what is possible in the movement today, and so... Well, I'll get back to you in a minute. One thing I want to ask our listeners is that, you know, uh, the book is called uh, Letters to Langston, From the Harlem Renaissance to the Red Scare and Beyond. Uh, I think you need to build up a revolutionary library, everybody out there, and then order this book. The Strategy Center is ordering 20 copies for a bookstore. Uh, and I think now we can teach it. You know how I said, Jenny, that there's no sense in getting a book in our bookstore if we haven't read it and if we can't say to somebody, you've got to read this because that's what Esawan does. They, whatever you ask them, 
Oh, yeah, let me tell you about that book. Oh, yeah. And some of our people go, I don't know, I don't read, but I think you should read a book. No. So <laughs> we had, so Channing is a reader, and I'm a reader, and I, we're going to really make a big thing about um, uh, letters from Langston. And one thing I'm going to go back to you is that I think another thing that's very interesting here, not shocking to me, but to some readers, is, and please find anything else you want to read, by the way, is the high level of intellect, and I, you know, you know that could be condescending. I don't mean it that way. I mean, I don't think people grasp the black intellectual tradition. Tradition, the the brilliance of these letters, besides the content, is the form, is the sense of humor, it's the uh, enjoyment of ideas, the enjoyment. We're black, and we're revolutionary, and and and, F, and F you, we know what we we're saying. The letters are literature. And they're high-level literature, and they're just beautiful. And that's another thing to realize. It's not just the content, but it's the fun. It's the, this one refers to that one. This one refers to that one. And sometimes it's about, hey, I forgot my, oh, that story about please bring me back some earrings, which I loved, which your mom said. Uh, Or how's the baby doing? Or I didn't get my play published, and blah, 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 and I feel bad. So... I love the letters, you know, I really did, and I immersed myself on their own terms. They don't have to prove anything to me, just what an enjoyable group of people. Yeah. Um, well, you know, people don't write letters today the way that people wrote letters back back in that time. Right. Um, we were talking yesterday, the mail used to be delivered twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. Uh, you had morning newspapers and evening newspapers. Um, so you could get a letter in the morning and write that letter and then post it the next morning. And then the person got it the following morning. Dang. And so it was uh, a continuous conversation. Um, we felt when my mother, who was the last of the five, right. my my two parents, my co-editor's two parents in Langston, my mother was the last of the five to leave us, and uh, she had the letters that Langston had written to her parents, and I had the letters that Langston had written to my parents, and we realized that we needed to see if Langston had kept any of the letters that they had written him, right. that this was a two-way you know, conversation, a five-way conversation. What had Langston kept? We went up to the Beinecke Library at Yale University and found that he had kept just about everything, including letters that we had written to him that we had totally forgotten about. Um, And that the letters proved that Langston had not abandoned the left radical tradition. So I'd like to read from uh, the introduction that Professor Robin D.G. Kelly wrote uh, for the book. Um, And he says, While none of the five correspondents had a conflict or contradiction-free relationship with the communist movement, their letters provide startlingly clear evidence that Hughes never broke his ties to the left. But it wasn't just an ideological and political commitment that kept Hughes tethered to the Pattersons and the Crawfords. It was the depths of their friendship that mattered most. Matt, Nebby, Pat, Louise, and their precocious daughters, Nebby Lou and Mary Louise, loved Hughes like family. And like family, they cajoled him, chastened him, celebrated him, thanked him, and never ever let him forget for whom he wrote. He endured their criticism 
if he strayed toward self-indulgence or sentimentality. (laughs) They kept him abreast of the struggles of black people, working people, and the oppressed. Thanks to their collective engagement, critique, and prodding, Hughes never lost that essential socialist impulse, the radicalism that so profoundly shaped his writing during the 1930s. The impulse changed and matured, but it did not disappear. And so we wanted, we realized when we saw the letters that Langston had kept from our parents that we had to tell that story, Eric, because um, Langston had been sanitized. Langston um, had been reduced to, um, I have, you know, kind of, I have a dream like Martin Luther King. Um, And we needed to show that Langston had never, ever abandoned the left, those principles, those dreams, or his friends, even in the most difficult period, the 1950s, he never abandoned them. He never abandoned those dreams. With the South Central Third World News, I'm Ernesto Arce with voices from the front lines and news from South Central to the Global South. Video published this weekend from a YouTube homeless advocate shows a disturbing trend of police and transport officials working together to harass the unhoused living near Los Angeles freeways. In a video timestamped January 9th, YouTuber Invisible People interviews a middle-aged man named Timothy who lives in the brush on the other side of a divider wall along the 101 freeway next to Madison West Park. Timothy says his girlfriend and another couple make their home there, but were disrupted by a joint Caltrans and CHP operation one day. My girl said, well, if you're going to throw everything away, aren't you going to store our stuff? And he said, it's not his problem. He don't give a f-. And he doesn't care, period. And he said it just like that. So I told him to stay away from us, period, you know? And he was threatening us that he had some people coming. And I don't know, it's just so out of hand with these people. He says a group of city workers and highway patrol officers converged on their encampment and ordered them to leave so they could perform a cleanup. When the homeless residents returned, Timothy says everything was worse. The workers ripped tents, discarded things that were organized, and threw everything across the brush area. When the unhoused residents asked for storage to safely store their belongings, the Caltrans worker used expletives to tell them that they didn't care about them nor their belongings. My girl said, well, if you're going to throw everything away, aren't you going to store our stuff? And he said, it's not his problem. He don't give a f-. And he doesn't care, period. And he said it just like that. So I told him to stay away from us, period, you know? And he was threatening us that he had some people coming. And I don't know. It's just so out of hand with these people. The joint operation also posted a special enforcement zone sign, giving them less than 24 hours to leave the area or be arrested. Invisible People, a YouTube channel that has worked with the LA Dream Center, says it's part of a disturbing trend of law enforcement and city officials working under the guise of sanitation patrols that leave encampments worse than they were, only to further criminalize those living there. Pro-Palestine activists in the UK have announced a major victory against Elbit, a weapons manufacturer and principal supplier of combat drones to Israel's military. Palestine Action, a coalition movement, has occupied Elbit Ferranti's manufacturing operation in Manchester for 18 months. According to their website, activists have blockaded, smashed, disrupted and held regular protests at the site. 
Last November, the activist group received an anonymous email about a staff reduction, and this week the firm announced it was selling the operation to a British electronics firm. Elbit has multi-million pound contracts with the British, EU and Israeli governments, but cited revenue loss as the main reason for shutting the plant down, despite its profit reports. PA tweeted, quote, Make no mistake, the heroes are the Palestinians, stuck in Israeli prisons, resisting occupation, and keeping the fight for freedom alive. Our strength is stemmed in their struggle, and we will struggle with them in order to hashtag shut Elbit down for good, unquote. And back in Southern California, healthcare workers at vaccine sites are coming under attack from right-wing anti-vaxxers. Staff at Families Together of Orange County, a public vaccination and flu shot site, said their employees and other healthcare workers were victims of a violent attack at their clinic at the end of December. Alexander Roselle is with Families Together of OC. He said the Tustin facility has been regularly targeted over the last two years by people who are angry with COVID-19 testing and vaccinations. People yelling across the street, some other ones filming, some other ones chasing Sarbans, but never have been so far to uh, being aggressive, physically aggressive to our employees. Last month's attack was the first physically violent attack, although others in the area have reported regular attacks. A recent New York Times article spoke about pandemic fatigue across the country, reporting that most Americans, about 60%, feel angry about lockdowns and restrictions. But healthcare workers, as well as low-wage service sector workers, are the ones reporting verbal assaults, harassment, and risky environments due to being in close daily contact with those who are not vaccinated and refuse to use personal protective equipment. With the South Central Third World News segment of Voices from the Front Lines, I'm Ernesto Arce. Now back to Eric Mann and Channing Martinez in the studio. So why are we going out with, of course, the amazing song by Nina Simone, To Be Young, Gifted, and Black, which makes me cry every time, but so many young, gifted, and Black people have listened to this song and it's propelled them into the most positive version of their own lives. To Be Young, Gifted, and Black was originally written by Lorraine Hansberry, not to music. And Nina Simone turned it into this song. But what a lot of you don't know is Lorraine Hansberry was very close to the Communist Party. And Nina Simone was very influenced by Lorraine Hansberry. Lorraine Hansberry introduced Nina Simone to Lenin. That's right, V.I. Lenin, not John Lennon. And again, you don't understand that the great thinkers of our time, the great black thinkers, but the great thinkers for all of us Every one of them was pro-communist or communist. So the next time you hear Young, Gifted, and Black, go listen to Lorraine Hansberry. Listen to her speech about the Stalins in 1964 when I worked for CORE. In the film, What Happened, Miss Simone, there's a wonderful conversation from her daughter growing up and listening to Lorraine Hansberry and Nina Simone and so many other black revolutionaries in her living room. 
discussing Marx and Mao and Lenin. And I'm sure Mayor Louise Patterson can tell you the same exact story about growing up in her living room and listening to Langston Hughes and so many other black revolutionaries. So if you can picture this from Langston Hughes, from Mary Louise Patterson to Lorraine Hansberry to Nina Simone, we give you to be young, gifted, and black. To be young, gifted, and black. Oh, how I've longed to know the truth. There are times when I look back and I am haunted by my youth. Oh, but my joy of today is it we can all be proud to say when you're young, gifted and black. Everybody, I hope you like this sort of uh, revolutionary acid trip. You know, things should speak for themselves. But if I can, this year, we're trying to make voices more of performance art, bringing the amazing voices, great music, artists, having Nesta Arce doing the South Central Third World News, and making voices better every day in every way. All power to the people. We'll see you next Tuesday. It'll be the day after Martin Luther King's holiday. And we'll certainly be talking about the revolutionary Dr. King. Take good care of yourselves. That's where it's at. That's where it's at.